Warning, this podcast contains bad language, controversial opinions, and various other forms of thought crime. It is not for the weak of will or the faint of heart. This is a decadent podcast, and if you can't handle that, you should go elsewhere. Further warning, sometimes this podcast doesn't contain anything controversial at all, and it's just me talking about interesting things with regular people. I'm changeable like that. Greetings, fellow mutants, and welcome to the Lemurian Hour, your weekly excavation into the interesting. Presented by the Ministry of Propaganda of the Serene Republic of Lemuria and the Temple of the New Flesh, I'm your host, the Right Reverend Johnny Lemuria. Welcome back to the Lemurian Hour. We have a lot to cover tonight. Uh, first up, we've got Ben and me talking about pornography, Satanism, and Nazis, all living and loving in America. And next, after that, we have Laura Augustine, a noted author and activist, and someone I credit with really opening my mind to a lot of things. And this is a very cool interview, so I hope you enjoy it. Welcome back to the Lemurian Hour, Ben. Hello. <laughs> Hi. Good to be back. So we're under about two to three feet of snow. How about you? Uh, it is almost sunny over here. It's sunny, no snow, dry, pretty nice. Wow. I feel bad for you guys. I feel you real should, bad. You really should. You should feel bad for I us. I don't feel bad. I don't feel bad. <laughs> so let us talk about snow and what can be done about snow. Specifically, let's talk about Massachusetts and what one company is doing to help people who are stuck in the snow. I am talking, of course, about that noted snow removal company, Pornhub. Yeah. Well, I think uh, they based an entire uh, uh, charity around a punt. I think that's what they did. <laughs> there are worse things to base a charity around. <laughs> so what happened was Pornhub, which as, you know, since most people don't actually look at pornography, may not know, Pornhub is an internet porn company, and they had a number you could call. Uh, you call the number, and Pornhub would come out and uh, plow your business, uh, I believe, I don't think it was residential, I think it was just businesses, for free. Plow your business? Yes. Uh, there were quite a few uh, puns made on the many uh, forums that this uh, story has appeared on. Um, I, I, I think if you look, if you look at some of the um, of the shovels, not the one on uh, this one page because this one is a fairly pedestrian rectangle, but some of the other uh, shovels with a more curved section. Oh, I didn't know they had comedy shovels. No, no, not comedy com erotic not, shovels. Not comedy erotic shovels. Just there are some that are more curved than others, and some. Ah. If you are in, so shall we say, a uh, desperately. Um, searching frame of mind look a bit more suggestive su suggestive than others uh, sure so you could probably uh, make some jokes or puns with that if you were inclined to it's probably not worth the effort so <laughs> well I think uh, good on them they're doing a good deed they're helping people out uh, if it promotes their business fine uh, yeah I, I don't see anything wrong with this at all well um, at midnight the uh, comedy show with Chris Hardwick uh, cover this topic and one of the games they played is what other uh, services should companies like this offer so I think that would be an interesting game for us to play what other services would you like to see internet porn companies offer the public like this oh, I didn't know that internet porn companies had become the, uh, the savior of uh, the, the public here um, I, I'm tempted to write in Pornhub for the 2020 presidential election just write in Pornhub yeah, uh, I, I, I mean, you know, just to keep with everything, uh, I would think uh, plumbing, like just plumbers could show up, because I mean, that seems to be the uh, the scenario for almost every porn ever made, right? So they should get to the plumbing and pizza delivery services, is that what you're saying? Pizza delivery, uh, TV repairman, 
uh, yeah, you know, pipe checker. <laughs> General pipe checking. Okay, I, I think we've reached the uh, official uh, floor of where we can go on yeah. those jokes. Uh, let's move on to something else. Um, from pornography to Satanism. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, the Satanic Temple which is quite careful to say that it's not an actual religious organization. It is a organization that firmly believes in separation of church and state uh, and merely uses satanic imagery to promote that, which they do quite extensively use as satanic imagery. Uh, they uh, have a um, billboard up in, let's see, uh, the Fort Worth Area School District. Uh, it says, never be hit in school again. Exercise your religious rights. This is a response to a school district that is uh, allowing corporal punishment, specifically uh, cross-gender corporal punishment. It allowed a male vice principal to spank three female students, evidently so yep. hard they left bruises. So now... Well, I mean, doesn't that happen when you spank somebody? It depends on the person, I suppose. I mean, I... I, I, read there, I read in the article that it said a woman would not leave a bruise on someone, which I found kind of stupid. Well, that was the mother saying it. and I mean, they didn't consult a medical official. I don't care, who, I don't care who's saying it. It's still stupid. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Maybe she, she doesn't got to the gym. But in any uh, case, the thing is still it's, it's paddling and it's corporal sure. punishment. And so right. what the Satanic Temple will do now is... Um, if you are in danger of being paddled, you can assert your religious rights against being paddled. As in, I am a member of the Church of Satan, uh, the Temple of Satan, and is against my religion to be paddled. And then if they uh, do that, uh, the Church, the Temple of Satan will go to court on your behalf to sue the uh, district. To I believe it when I see it. Well, they are, they do good work. I mean, they, they have been known to be litigious in defense of stuff like this. So this is not the first time they've engaged in this sort of activity. Well, I think it's good. I think it's stupid that uh, kids get paddled at school. I think, uh, I mean, you know, I, if anything, the parents should paddle their kids and the parents shouldn't paddle their kids. It's <laughs> never, never been proven to work right. on anything. Um, yeah, I mean... The only thing I've ever heard of abusing your kids is makes they it makes them abuse their kids and just be abusive in general. So it's 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 pretty dumb. Mm. Let's move on to um, more good news. Uh, Amazon killing more jobs than China. Uh, this is actually yeah. an opinion piece by yeah. a uh, fellow writing for Market Watch who says that yeah, someone whose job will never be taken by Amazon. Well, that but that points out a larger issue. A friend of mine asked on Facebook recently, name one industry that will not be able to be automated within 10 years. Or actually, within 10 years? Well, actually, uh, forget the uh, – that, that was my addition was the 10 years. But what um, industry would never be able to be automated? I can't think of one. I'm in home health care. And I am pretty sure that they will have robots who could do my job in about five years. They'll be more expensive than hiring a human, but I, that may, uh, the cost may go down to within 10 years. But I am pretty sure they're going to have robots that can do my basic level of job in about five years. Uh, yeah, maybe. Um, I mean, I guess the thing is, like, it costs less to make a robot that can do all this stuff than it is to, you know, pay someone to do that Eventually, for yes. a long amount of time. Yeah. They're going to make a nurse bot yeah. that can, I don't, I don't think they're going to be able to make a robot that can do everything that you do. I don't do that much. Within five years. <laughs> I don't think they're going to be able to do that. They have robots in Japan now that, uh, can pick up and move uh, patients. And in fact, they're big, friendly looking robots. Well, friendly for a Japanese robot. Uh, so they yes. hug uh, the patients in the cases of, say, the elderly. They have mm -hmm. diag di diagnosis chatbots right now that are more accurate than human physicians. So I, if you can have a well, chat. Well, someone's got to make all these robots, right? I guess they have robots making the robots. 
robots all the way down. Uh, but I'm just saying my job, I mean, it's a lot of physical activity and looking out for my patients, uh, well-being, my clients well-being, uh, and we already have a lot of things they can do that. It's just a matter of miniaturization and putting them together. Sure. So I don't know. I mean, it seems like, well, number one, you're going to have to have someone monitoring the robots to make sure they're not just accidentally killing people, I would think, <laughs> or just picking them up too hard, you know? Pet the uh, bunny. Pet the bunny. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, someone has to be keeping an eye out on the robots. Like, you can't just let the robots be running around. I mean, even at car factories, someone's there to make sure the robots aren't screwing up, I'm sure. Well, yes. Right? It's one person per 50 robots um, or something along those lines. But let's talk about your job, for instance. Uh, there's a lot of moving parts in my job, me being one of them. Yes, but even the most creative aspect of your job, which is designing T-shirts, which is a very creative thing. You don't think within five years they could get a robot to scan images of the Internet and have some sort of algorithm to combine them into a, a uh, design and then have some sort well, of... Well, I mean, I'm sure you can go on, like, say, a website like, uh, what is it, uh, Custom Inc., mm -hmm. and you can design the shirt right there, and then they will... I'm sure they've got something that prints it. Right. I mean, that's easy enough, but they don't... You, it's not always a great idea to have the customer in charge of designing their own shirt. Um, many times I've had to tell a customer that their ideas were bad or stupid <laughs> and would not make a good shirt. And uh, it's, I, I would like to say I've saved quite a few shirts that way. Um, and if you just leave a robot in charge of it, well, then, I mean, a robot's going to do what you want to do. Mm. It, it, there's no checks or balances in a robot's mind as to, I mean, you can tell it to like go for symmetry, but I think as far as like uh, artistic, um, you know, uh, I don't know, visualization, right. just what works, I don't think a robot is ever going to be able to figure that out. And if it does, great, but there's still so many other things hmm. involved. It's interesting. So you're, you may be asserting that your biggest non- I mean, that's, it's like saying that a robot could, you know, paint a Picasso. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think a robot could ever paint a Picasso. I have a program on my uh, computer right now. It's a link to a website called Dreamscope. Do you know about Dreamscope? Is it the one that, like, turns people's faces into dogs and, like, that, that's horrible just nightmare <laughs> realms? That is one of the things it can do. But what the other thing it can do is you can say, okay, make this picture look like Picasso. And it will redo the picture in the style of Picasso or Matisse or Magritte. But it's not the style. Picasso put, I mean, despite it looking like, you know, craziness, Picasso probably put a lot of thought into how he would position this crooked nose or this, you know, uh, chunk eye or whatever thing he was doing there. I mean, a robot is just saying this is... This is at the angle of the nose must be like the angle of this nose in this other Picasso painting in order to achieve Picasso-ness. And, you know, it's, it's not. I don't think so. There's, okay. there's no soul. Okay. I'll grant you that uh, Picasso probably put more thought into his work than a robot would. But here is the crucial question. Would the customer notice? If you had two pictures and one of them was an original by Picasso, and the other was a very good computer algorithm that turned a photograph into a Picasso Picasso-esque picture. And the viewer had never seen either one before. And you showed them these two uh, paintings and said, "Pick out the better one." Would he go for the P Picasso original? Would I don't he do know. that? Has this ever been done before? I don't know, but it'd be very interesting to find out. I, I guess it would depend on the customer, I suppose. If it was someone not interested in art, uh, it probably wouldn't matter. Well, why does he have to? Uh, not, why does he have to be not interested in art? I mean, he could have a very keen aesthetic sense, but if the computer-generated one looks better to him, well, then that's fine. Which I is, guess we put a dead man out of a job. <laughs> hey, if you're going to have to do that, better to be the dead man than anything anyone else, I suppose. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, it, it's I'm sure 
everyone can be replaced. Let's replace the Senate with robots. Let's, uh, you know, with with chatbots, I guess. I think it's just, I mean, do you want, it just seems like everything will become very arbitrary if we have robots in charge of things. It's already arbitrary. It needs to be quicker with less uh, pausing in between words. <laughs> let's, let's make America an assembly line. Everything. There are some. Well, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't think robots are ever going to replace like uh, high-level chefs. Uh, I don't think they're going to replace uh, interior decorators. I don't think they're going to replace. Um, no, I mean, humans want a human to make decisions for them. They don't want a robot to make decisions for them, unless it's something that you know doesn't involve style. Okay. I mean, a human is always going to be involved in style. But what if it was – okay, I think there's two uh, mental preconditions that you're operating under. I'm probably operating under several myself. But what if it wasn't a robot telling you this? What if it was, oh, I don't know, Bumblebee from the Transformers? Sure. I mean, just that was the interface you were interacting with. It isn't some – Alexa or Siri, but it's something that you grew up with. Something that sure, if I was a five-year-old child, I would do whatever. Oh, you know, oh come on! Told me to come on. If you had Starscream saying this suit would look better on you, you would your 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 intuition would change slightly. I think. Uh, yeah. Well, I'll believe it when I see it. Okay, I'll get right on that. Um. So, what do we think about uh, Sebastian Gorka? Yeah, so that's the guy who's uh, tied to some uh, Hungarian uh, nationalist movement from uh, the 20s or something like that. He's tied? I mean, I think the – I looked at the Wikipedia article. I think it started, it like, while the Ottoman Empire was still around uh, and was linked to a bunch of people in uh, Transylvania, which I thought was pretty cool. <laughs> but uh, – Apparently, uh, they were also uh, friends of Nazis. But apparently, like, during World War II, there was a big, uh, maybe a split between the group. Like, there was a... Uh, After World a, War II. After World War II. I thought it was during. Like, it was, uh, there was like, a, a bit of a, you know, a civil a civil war inside of the, uh, the group over the uh, Nazi activities. I don't know. I well, mean, maybe he's part of the part that stayed, you know, Nazi. Um, I don't know. He wore a pin in a photo, and I guess it was as pride for his father being in the uh, the group or something like that. That's the uh, story. Yes. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't. I really. I don't know enough about the group, and the Wikipedia article on it isn't very long, so I don't really have a very informed opinion on it. Well, it was, and I'm not going to like take you know. Uh, what was it, the forward? I'm not going to take their word. I'm not going to take anybody's word right now on what's a Nazi and what's not a Nazi. It, it seems like, you know, anything can make you a Nazi. Like, people are just throwing that word around just like they're throwing out racist and sexist, and it doesn't mean anything anymore. Okay. But, yeah, uh, yeah I, I, I really, you know, he's part of some, you know, uh, crazy group. Lots of people are parts of crazy groups that have had crazy histories. Well, he is part of I mean, a group that the State Department officially labeled Nazi. I mean, I'm not saying that uh, carries any weight, but back during, at the end of World War II, they said that these yeah. guys were Nazis. So what, are we going to arrest them? Are we going to, like, uh, what are we going to do to them? Well, no, it's just... Punch them? We're going to have some guy in a mask run up and punch him? Is well, that the, the plan? If you've heard Gorka speak, I mean, my fist itches. But the thing is, he, at the very least, you're supposed to tell the American government, you were part of this group when you're trying to immigrate to the United States. And he is he didn't... even part of the group, though? According to the group, he is. That's the thing. I mm -hmm. mean, who who do you believe? Who do you believe? Who, do you believe the Nazi or do you believe the member of the Trump administration? I don't think either one of them has all like great credibility. Well, I think uh, some people would tell you they're the same thing. Exactly. Uh, so if you go by multiple members of the organization, he is a member. And if he is a member, then he came to U.S. without telling the government he was a member. 
And given that the group is so officially... everyone's just finding out right now that he's a member of this? Well, he only wore the pin very recently on TV. A lot of people didn't even know about the group. I mean, did you know about the group before all this brouhaha? No, I did not. No, unless you were a, a deep student of Hungarian history during World War II, there's no reason why you should know about the group. Well, I almost am, but I'm not to that degree. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm just saying uh, it's an obscure group, but that doesn't make it not Nazi. So if if a guy lied to the American government and became a U.S. citizen based well, on Well, he didn't lie. He just omitted information. That's kind of a lie. When you're talking to the U.S. Yeah. government, when they ask you, should we know anything? And you say, nope. That's kind of a lie. Well, what what kind of policies does he have? Like, what what is his uh, – what has he enacted, you know? I mean – well, what's, uh, has he done anything Nazi-like, aside from be part of the Trump government? He's part, he's been pushing the travel ban. He's been pushing uh, the, a lot of the anti-Muslim bias. Yeah. That's kind of... Which is, uh, the, I think that's a good segue into your other uh, story that you had me read. What's the... Uh, the, uh, the people that, I guess there's a case where a guy was trying, uh, he yeah. got busted, uh, trying to by the FBI for trying to get someone to do something for ISIS. Right. And then they found some Nazi memorabilia in his apartment or something, or they're trying to say he's a Nazi because he's a member of ISIS or something like that? Uh, yes. Uh, let's see. This is... What's the guy's name? Nicholas Young. Uh, according to a transcript of the hearing, uh, U.S. I mean, Assistant U.S. Attorney Gordon Cronberg said that the defendant, Nicholas Young, was interested in ISIS and Nazism simultaneously. As an example of historical Muslim-Nazi cooperation, Cronberg noted that Young on Facebook had liked Mufti Muhammad Ahmed al-Husani, a Palestinian nationalist who supported Adolf Hitler. What that means is there was some sort of automatic Facebook Facebook page generated about the guy, and he liked it, which just means he, he was following the page. Last year, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu caused an uproar by claiming that al-Husayani inspired the Nazi Holocaust, an allegation that was widely denounced as untrue by historians. This is all from The Intercept, by the way, the Glenn Greenwald website, which I find very informative. So the FBI executed a search warrant on Young's apartment. Um, and he had Nazi mementos in the apartment. Did now, he have the Hungarian pin of the the Velter flip flop? That, that was that was the Velt flip flop was not mentioned in this article. It could be, it could okay. be. I'm not sure. Right. I I was just call it, start calling it the Velt flip flop from now on. That is what Gorka wants. <laughs> the Velt flip flop. Um, well, it just sounds, this guy, this uh, Nicholas Young, just sounds like a, a dickhead in all respects. I wouldn't be surprised if he had a head in his refrigerator. He just sounds like a horrible person. What? Uh, That's not a horrible it's person. It's not surprising that he's into ISIS and Nazism at the same time. I'm not surprised. But the main the main thing about him being into ISIS is he agreed to send a $245, $245 worth of gift cards to an FBI informant who had been posing as a friend. The informant told Young that he had joined ISIS and needed the money to pay for mobile messaging accounts ISIS could use to recruit Westerners. Uh, now, that's... I don't know about that. Is that even against the law to give someone $250 worth of gift cards? It's evidently material support of terrorism. That's what they're getting him on. Hmm. But, okay, here's the thing. I am not disagreeing that Young is by all accounts a dickhead. He sounds like an asshole. Not questioning yeah. that. I mean, Nazi memorabilia, works as a police officer, asshole. I'm okay with that. But does it make him a terrorist? Uh, I think him I think him supporting ISIS makes him a terrorist. But they let him still be a police officer after that. his memorabilia collection as proof that he's a terrorist. That's one ah, of their main things. They're saying, okay. look, he collects Nazi stuff. Nazis are bad. He gave this guy a phone card. This guy says he was from ISIS. ISIS is bad. This guy is Nazi ISIS bad. No, there's lots of people with Nazi memorabilia in their houses that aren't terrorists, although they definitely could, potentially could be 
terrorists, just not ISIS terrorists. But if they're trying to bust him for being an ISIS terrorist, they should go for ISIS memorabilia, not Nazi memorabilia. Because we don't have any interest with each other. Yeah, there's, there's, I mean, any ISIS plot is not, you know, uh, a Nazi plot. They're two different bad things. And it should also be pointed out that, once again, this is not some guy approaching an FBI undercover guy and saying, Hey, I understand that you like ISIS. Let me give you money. This is, once again, the FBI initiating a plot. Right, right. Or, like, you know, giving uh, a bunch you know, a bunch of idiots some weapons, you know, so that they try to do a terrorist attack and then arresting them immediately and not afterwards. Even, and yeah. they don't even try to do the terrorist attack. They give them the weapons and say, oh, you took the weapons, you must be terrorists. You gave them the right. damn weapons. Yeah, that's stupid. Go, go after stuff that's actually happening. So... I mean, you're, you're, you're just making terrorists out of people that aren't terrorists at this point. Well, that budget's got to be You're creating terrorists. That seems counterproductive. <laughs> well, it depends on what... I mean, there's lots of people that would probably love to blow up banks and stuff like that, but they're not going to do it because uh, it's too much work. Or uh, they're, you know, they're wusses. They don't want to do it. I mean, they like... I mean, I would... I'd love to, I, there's things I'd love to blow up, but I'm not going to. There's things you'd love to fantasize about blowing up. I mean, it's a fantasy. That's the thing. Yeah, you're allowed to write about blowing stuff up. People have been doing that for hundreds of years. <laughs> Look at the damn Death Star. <laughs> exactly. Blowing up. I'm sure whoever wrote that wished it was something else. Very good point. <laughs> yeah. No, that's, that's really stupid. Yeah. Man, this is a bunch of stupid stuff. It is a bunch of stupid stuff. And I think that's the perfect place to leave it today. Thank you for uh, once again surveying all the stupid stuff going on in the universe with me, Ben. No problem. I'm disgusted. How was the uh, show? Uh, it was great. Uh, there was like four or five people there. It was really good. <laughs> yeah. Good show. Good show up at the show. When is Earth Collider, uh, Collider going to play in New York City? Oh, I don't know. Uh, when New York City has lower standards, I guess. I have no idea. It's New York City. Uh, they got they got standards. I don't know. I don't know if we'll ever be able to go on a tour. It's really, it was hard enough getting our schedules together to play in front of five people. It's really <laughs> uh, not easy anymore. Well, if you ever want to play uh, Cosmopolitan Honesdale, I got the hookup for you. Oh, yeah. No, I want to play anywhere in Honesdale. That'd be great. Uh, I think all of us, we got a lot of fans in Honesdale. Okay. All four or five of them. Well, on that yeah. note, uh, thank you so much, Ben, and I'll talk to you next week. All right, John. You're listening to The Lemurian Hour. Your normalcy card has been revoked. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Lemurian Hour. My guest tonight is Laura Augustin, author of many books, including uh, Sex at the Margins, and her latest one, a work of fiction entitled The Three-Headed Dog. Welcome to the program, Laura. Thank you very much, Tony. Now, you're an authority, and you've written extensively on the subjects of undocumented migration, informal labor markets, trafficking, and the sex industry. I was wondering if you could tell us what drew you to these areas. Yeah, well, it's a. It starts out as a very personal story. I, I was just. I just have spent a lot of my life wandering around the world, <clears throat> doing odd jobs and and observing what's going on. And I spent a lot of my time in Latin America, and where a lot of people were leaving to go to other countries mm-hmm. to stay for a while and try to make some some money. And um, I particularly knew people who were coming to Europe, which is where I am now. And this was going to be undocumented. It was understood that there would be no work permits for people like this. They would never get a visa. They would never be able to get a work permit. So that they would do this in this undocumented way, using smugglers or families who help them get false papers. And... um, for women, there really are only two jobs available if, if you are undocumented, and that is being made of some kind or selling sex in some way or another. And um, the people that I knew discussed both of these as possible rational choices, um, and some people were very clear that they would never want, they would rather die than be a maid, 
because it was so humiliating and other people felt that they would rather die than have to be a prostitute. Hmm. And some people would do both. And what I observed, so this all seemed very normal to me and these were my friends and the kind of way of looking at the world that I knew. And then I became aware that there were all these people being very upset about women who ended up being prostitutes or sex workers or whatever they were called. Probably they're not calling themselves anything in other countries and how terrible this was. And so my question as a person out in the world was, what's so upsetting about prostitution? They're making 10 times as much money if they are sex workers as if they're maids. And so what's the problem? I understand that undocumented migration is illegal. However, why are these people talking about it that way? And so when I eventually, at an advanced stage, went back to school to study, that, my, that was my research question. Not why do these poor women do this, but why do these middle-class people get so upset about women who sell sex? Right. What it was about. And I do find it interesting, as you said, there are... Uh, at least, obviously there's way more than two, but there's at least two groups of people. One who would say, oh, I could never be a maid, and one who could say, I could never be a sex worker. And they both are equally feminine about that. That's just, yes. it's not something that could happen. Yes. Yes, it seems to be a very personal kind of experience about, about how, how you experience your body and humiliation and, and having a little control over what you do and whether, and also whether other people will consider you a good person or decent or not. So some people who decide, who go on being maids, it's because they, they really can't handle everyone being so awful to them about being prostitutes. Mm. <laughs> they would rather maintain this, uh, this very low profile as a, as a maid, which is just as, I mean, it's even more exploitative work than sex work in many ways. Mm. Now, you do, as I said, have a new book come, coming out, which is a, if not a first, and a rarity for you, a work of fiction called A Three-Headed Dog. I was wondering if you could tell us about it. Yes, well, you see, I, so I went back to school, and I, so I was, uh, I did a master's degree, and then I did a, a PhD, and what I was looking at was considered very unusual and very scandalous, and I got lots of attention, and, and eventually that book became Sex at the Margins. And, and it still sells after almost 10 years. It's quite amazing. So it's not, it's not a view of the world that people are used to seeing and it still is, um, it still causes a lot of upset. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, over these years, I, I realized that whatever you might call it, debate or public, public conversations about these subjects were really stuck. That they really all, they just were, it was all about, is it possible for a woman to freely choose to do this? And just this endless kind of back-and-forth reductionist thing. And I became very bored. <laughs> very bored of myself personally from saying the same thing all the time. And also that, the, um, that to me, it's not at all simple. It's, it's fascinating because it's very complicated and very changing and people change their mind about what they're doing over time. It's not like it's always oh, either choice or not choice. It's either free or not free. Mm -hmm. The anti-trafficking movement took off during this time and so these this last 10 years has just been this kind of screaming campaigning and I just, I thought, no, I'm never going to get to talk about what I want to talk about. And so I I decided to go back, it's not the first time I wrote fiction, to go back to fiction and try to express some of the subtlety and interesting complications that go on in the world where people are undocumented and floating in and out of jobs and some of them taking sex jobs and feeling okay about it and mm -hmm. some of them having a rotten time. That's why I did it, was to be able to express more and get it out there somehow. Right. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, as you said, uh, there has been a lot of 
increase in volume, if not information, in, say, the last 10 years about these subjects. I was wondering if you could maybe just touch briefly on some of the biggest misconceptions, shall we say, ordinary people might have about migration. Also, if you could um, just elaborate on the difference between migration and immigration, because I think a lot of people don't really, they just gloss over that when they talk about this subject. Yes, well, so when I eventually, when I became this intellectual person <laughs> in this and in theory and stuff, I, I focused on migration studies. That was one big part of it. Mm -hmm. Not all of it, but that was one big part of it. So this is a field now that goes back for some decades. The, it's understandable that a government would hold on to this old word, immigration. The, the word immigration implies that people decide to leave one country definitively for some well-thought-out reason, and they plan to go to another one with a great deal of intention and settle there and stay and make good. That's the old-fashioned. So when you, in the 19th century, when you had people leaving Europe to go to the United States, they didn't imagine that they would float back and forth. Right. Although some people did take boats back <laughs> and forth. It was a big deal, and that was not how it a lot of the people were poor, and so getting there once was, you know, enough. And then when you didn't, if you arrived on the East Coast and you didn't really do well, then you might push farther west rather than going backwards. Mm -hmm. This is now not, this is now not the situation. People can leave quite easily on, on airplanes and boats and cars and things. And, and so there, there's much more of a culture of going and trying it out. Let's go there and see what we can make of it and um, see if it works out and send money home, but also go back home and maybe have some family reunification and bring some along, but not intend to stay forever at all. Go work in, work in do sex work where you get huge amounts of money and, and do it for enough years that you have enough money to build the house back on the island or whatever it is. And then go home and live in that house. Mm -hmm. This is the this is what migration migration would be the larger the larger category that would include all kinds of movements where people go and live and work in places. So when people talk about migrant sex workers, they're talking about women and men and trans people who decide to go for a while and then move on. Um, uh, the fact that it's also stigmatized and, and, and often criminalized, of course, promotes the moving it on, but there's not the same kind of thought that my dream is to go and live in the United States and I'm never going to leave. This is not, and of course, that's not true for highly paid, a lot of highly paid, highly skilled migrants either. They might get the work permit and go to New York and have a job and then get a better deal in Paris and leave. And so that's what migration right. is. So really the common uh, conception of immigration is just a small part of migration. They might go or they might stay or they might not. It's really up to yes. them nowadays. Yes. Yes. It's much, it's, it's much more fluid mm -hmm. and, and not so dependent on an intention to go and live your dream in a particular mm -hmm. place be there forever. Right. Well, you mentioned, see, I think a lot of people would be very surprised that, A, uh, migrant sex workers have that dream of saving enough cash to go back and build a house and live a nice life in their country of origin. Uh, I mean, I think, I think the popular conception is that they are the eternal victims and they can't think uh, farther ahead than just surviving the next day. Yes, well, that's so this is how I got into it. Yes. So that's that. So when I was looking, when I was first got my attention caught, it was the early 90s. It's a long time ago. Mm -hmm. People were talking about trafficking. That word wasn't used. So I didn't even know what it was. The first couple of times that people accused me of encouraging trafficking, I didn't even understand what they were talking about. Okay. So so I got over that. But the but the point is that I knew that there was why don't my, my, the innocent thing that people think when they see this problem is that they say, but why don't all these people talk to the migrants and find out? Then they would find out that they're okay 
with being a prostitute for a while, that they understand they'll do that for a while, it's okay. So you imagine that there hasn't been a real conversation. Hmm. But this is very naive, and of course you find out that that's wrong, that, <laughs> that the people who want to present it believe that you don't really know what you're doing. That's the crux of it. That right. When I was in the early 90s, I had a job in AIDS prevention. I was living in the Dominican Republic, um, and there one of, there were some self-identified sex workers. They were very poor women. They were black bar girls, and they organized an event to talk about their problems with the police and stuff. And 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 I didn't know much about it really. And I was sitting in the back row thinking, oh well, this is interesting. That you know, that's interesting. And then someone asked them for permission to get on the stage. And they were very polite, and they let this woman who turns out to come from a big international, um, <clears throat> now it's an anti-trafficking organization, and she she stood on the stage and she looked at the black bar girls in the front row and she told them that they were misguided. She told them that they didn't know what was really good for them, huh. that they had the sex workers, that they were prostituted women, and that they had false consciousness. And my my reaction from the back row was, how could this woman be so rude? How could she come to somebody else's event and talk to them that way? Yeah, so they don't have the consciousness of realize they're prostitutes, but they do have the wherewithal to actually organize a conference. That seems kind of odd. <laughs> it seems so odd. I mean, that's how I got into this. Right. So now you... That's that. Uh, what in the world? Why would they come and talk to these? Look at these strong, capable women who have done this thing. Mm -hmm. The only thing is that there's sex in it. So this turns into. So when I had to go and do all the studying, I had to read all this stuff about sex and money and why are people, you know, what? Why could this make such a big difference? But that's how it. That's how it started. And in the last ten years. It's just become frozen in this place where a vast sector of people are assumed to know the right way to live for everyone else. These are the people that I call the rescue industry. It's in the title of Sex and the Bargains. Let's, let's talk about the rescue industry, because that term has been coming up a lot lately. How would you characterize the rescue Well, I, I invented this term. Okay. Well, <laughs> I invented then, help. this term as a as a shorthand way, so I wrote this PhD thesis, um, and and I, I studied migration and I studied ideas about prostitution and the history of prostitution, and then I did field work with these people who in this was Spain. I was living in Spain, and where there are all these people with little NGOs, you know, associations, nonprofits, whatever, who who said that they were helping migrants, that they wanted to help them. And I believe them. It's not that I disbelieve that, that they, want, they wanted to help them. And a great deal. So I went to their meetings and I went out with them on their <clears throat> going out in the street and things and saw how they talked about what was what was going on. And there are very reasonable people who do this and who have no illusions about what about saving anyone. But there was an increasing tone of we have to stop these women from doing this and we have to save them and find them, you know, let them go home. And it, it, it wasn't yet about trafficking per se, but then the United States hadn't entered the fray, you see. I mean, the, the, the extreme violence of this, the silliness of it is down to the United States, I'm afraid, well, who... If there's one thing, if there's one thing we excel at, it's extreme violence and silliness. We're quite good at those. Yes, really. I, you know, just I, I remember in the early days thinking, well, I'm, you know, I'm not paying any attention. This is ridiculous. I'm not paying any attention to it. But I mean, there's there's an entire office trafficking in persons office with huge funding and report cards for the rest of the world on how everyone's doing about catching bad guys. And to, to me, it's, you know, imperialism is just U.S. imperialism. But it's not that no one else feels that way. So the U.N. has offices that say they feel that way. And every country has a group of people. And, the, and the, some kinds of feminists agree about that. So they got jumped on it. And so the rescue industry has 
different kinds of participants in it. But the assumption of all of them is that these women don't want to do this and they shouldn't be allowed to do it because it's hurting them. They're damaging themselves whether they know it or not. And so we who know best how they should live should take charge here. And give them a sewing machine. And stop them and put them somewhere else. Or in the United States, they get put in jail a lot and deported. But that, but there's this whole rhetoric about saving them from the fate worse than death, which is really what we're talking about. This isn't any different from very old-fashioned ideas about prostitutes as fallen women and people that you have you, that you, that the worst thing that can happen to you is to have the wrong kind of sex. Right. I. I do, what I find interesting about this, because I do follow these debates somewhat, is that whenever someone does come out to advocate on behalf of sex work or uh, for the decriminalization of prostitution or things like that, one of the things they're often accused of is being part of the big pimp club. <laughs> like there is some sort of vast cabal of people wearing leopard skin fedoras who give millions of dollars to these people who are advocating for uh, sex work. But... What I see um, in the news is people on the other side, on the, on the anti-trafficking side, being arrested for fraud and having their studies um, exposed of using just sloppy, bad data. You don't usually see that on the decriminalization side. I just find that interesting. Yes. Well, I, I mean, you're talking to one of the people who's a member of the pimp law. Yes. <laughs> you define, I mean, obviously, if you define the thing is, I mean, I, I don't I don't have any money, so it's really it's a ludicrous idea in my case. However, they, you know, people would say that I have by having that book, I have benefited. You see that I've right. somehow benefited. That the idea is that you would interview me, and then that I've made myself into something on the backs of I, I don't know. This is life. You you know you do things, and then other people are interested, and they talk to you about it. There is. There definitely is, and how serious they are. I mean, I know some of the people who are doing the research to try to prove that the funding, it's small funding, but there is a little funding for sex worker rights activism. Mm -hmm. There are some international associations, and George Soros, the Open Society Institute, or whatever he calls it now, does give some funding there are a couple of there are a couple of sources of funding to let a few people do a few things, and the and the people who are against you know the anti prostitution and anti trafficking people find that super appalling that there would be any such funding like that, and they try they are trying to make it into a highly sinister thing. Right. Apart from ide- ideas that I don't know that we're all that we're all you know, running websites where we, you know, send women around to, to be raped in places. I, I mean, I don't know, but I know that there are people trying to study that and prove there will be a new book about it soon. Okay. But I've been accused of this all along, all along, and I, I, I just find it, I just, I usually just look out at the audience and, and say, well, you know, you can judge for yourself if you <laughs> do. I look like do I, you know, do I really look and sound like that kind of person? It seems ridiculous. Now, I was uh, full disclosure for the audience. I sent you some ideas for questions before this interview, just to make sure I get the full benefit of it. And one of the questions I suggested was, what countries are getting uh, their policies on sex work and migration right? And you wrote back quite concisely, none of them. None of them are going to get it right. <laughs> but I was wondering if you could maybe touch on the ones that are getting it particularly bad and the ones that are doing better. Are there any that, while not doing it right, are doing it least bad? Well, okay, so here's the thing. If your question is about prostitution law, mm-hmm. it's possible to talk about better and worse. Okay. Prostitution law itself does not affect undocumented migration, Right. Undocumented migrants have no right to be in the place where they are. So it wouldn't matter if, you know, if, if some really straight employer employed you because they thought you were legal and (laughs) in a very straight job, 
and then it was found out that you were didn't really have real papers, then you're deported, you're out, you have no right to be, you have no right to work. So if you talk about prostitution law, then you can talk about, well, I think that, you know, the way they do it in Germany has some of it is regulated and that seems to work out so and some some other things don't work out so well. You can talk about New Zealand, which has a larger kind of decriminalization than a lot of places. You can talk about the Netherlands. And but, really, the United States is the only Western place where prostitution is a crime itself. But what you're, yes. what you're seeing is it's the migration issue that's the real problem. Well, for the activists, the activists want the prostitution law to be, to be better than it is everywhere. Mm -hmm. So it's marginally better in some ways for citizens in these countries I've mentioned. Right. However, it has many, it still is very bad everywhere and many auxiliary activities are considered crimes so that people are ending up in trouble anyway. Mm -hmm. But what research, everyone's research has shown for decades is that the majority of people who are trying to sell sex, calling themselves prostitutes or escorts or whatever, are migrants. It's a, this is a way of being mobile in the world. This is about human mobility. It's a way for people to go to another place and try it out and see what they can do. And so in Europe, it's way more than 50%. You know, it's, 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 in some places, it's probably 70, 80% of the people who are selling sex anymore. But there's no way to really count because you don't have to register anywhere about it. And so, okay. But the point is that in the European Union, there is a Schengen agreement that allows people in the same group to go and work in other countries. Although, again, you, get in some kind of trouble. But anyone coming from Thailand or if you come from the U.S. to Europe, you don't have the right to work. You don't have it unless you apply to the state to get a work permit, and you don't get work permits for prostitution anywhere, including in the nicely decriminalized places like New Zealand. Right. New Zealand, they prohibit it because of this trafficking thing. They say there's more likelihood that there will be trafficking people being forced, if we allow it. So yes, it's decriminalized, except that you can't come from outside. Well, but people do come from outside anyway. So that it's the intersection, it's, very, it's highly complicated. It's the intersection of mobility to work and what the law says about prostitution. So there's more than two kinds of movements going on here, trying to make policies coherent. The United States doesn't have, you mentioned the word foreign policy, there is no United States policy against prostitution. That's every state. Right. Every state has that. There is U.S. foreign policy against trafficking now, right? Right. But so you couldn't just fix, <laughs> you couldn't fix the United States situation <laughs> from the White House or from any of those you know, the department, you can't do that. Every state takes a position, and so for some reason, that's how the United States ended up with all of these, the prohibitions of everything. Mm -hmm. If the question is, what, what would be better if you believe that there's trafficking, if you believe that most of these people are being forced, but you would like them to have a chance of having a, a better life, then you could consider having expanded work permits for things that are not just white people's highly skilled jobs, you know, in right. banks. You could, you could consider letting them have, you know, two-year work permits to pick strawberries or, you know, be a maid or whatever. And there are, there are things that, that can be done, whether you call them guest workers or whatever. If you think that those women are, are forced, then you could make it, make, give them more options. Because if they have a work permit, they have recourse uh, to the police, to various other agencies, say, hey, I am being exploited, help me not be exploited. They can't do that right now because they are undocumented. Yes, of course, you know, if you're, if you're a migrant, I mean, you're seeing this in the United States, you know, grotesquely right now. Oi, oi, yes. <laughs> 
you know how suspicious and unpleasant everyone feels about you, even if you're temporarily, even if you're temporarily legal, you may choose to shut up mm. and not report anything to anyone, and you may believe that you know the police would put you on an airplane anyway. <laughs> you know, so I, you know these would be huge changes. Huge changes about the idea of people switching countries to to work. You know, you, it's it, it, it's worse than it was when I when I started thinking about it. It's got much worse in that way, mm. and it's not just Trump. It's the way people are worried about the economy and the idea that people will come and steal your job or somehow steal your culture. People can be darn silly sometimes. Um, <laughs> I was going to ask you what changes you would make to American policy. I, I somehow think that we, we may be too far gone without something yes. violent happening. So let's talk about the EU. What changes would you make to EU policy to make things better for these? What would, what would be your platform as far as migrants go? Oh, well, I mean, from the beginning, I've been talking about what, what, I, what I just mentioned, which is loosening up possibilities for actual work permits. It, it would take some time to find out how many people pick up on those work permits, couldn't you? There, you know, there are old-fashioned things called guest worker programs, right. and people get upset and say, oh, but that didn't work in Germany because blah, blah, blah. There's many, many, many possible things to, to try. W would this influence the thing about prostitution and sex work? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. If you've got people who are set on selling sex because it makes a lot more money and because it's possible in underground markets to just do it, you see, that's the thing. If, if you're doing it off the books, it's easier, isn't it? Mm -hmm. this, is a, this is a really basic thing, and this I, this I put into my novel, The, the Three-Headed Dog, also, that the idea that everyone wants to be straight up and regular and and lawful well that means you have hellish amounts of paperwork right. and the state watching you and looking at you all the time and wondering about you and if you just slip in and get jobs in kitchens and back rooms and things then at least <laughs> at least they're not bothering you all the time and so it's that it's clear that a lot of people want that kind of just they don't mind being illegal if if, if you in a place like great britain a similar thing is going on about the, the trafficking so they use the trafficking excuse as a as a reason to stop migration and try to stop people completely right <laughs> I, I still belong, after all these years, I still belong to, to uh, uh, the idea that we should loosen this up because most people want to be mobile and want to be able to go side things and it doesn't work to prohibit. It just doesn't work. You can, do, you can make all the programs in this world, you can make the walls and things and the, and the false papers and the ideas of it, they get better at it. They get better at it and they find other ways. And, that people are flying in any way. It's not about crossing laws. So I would, I would suggest so throwing up hands and saying, okay, let's try to come up with a more, more open migration policy where people can come in and do some stuff for a while and find out whether they like it or not, and then leave if they don't. Well, that without sorry, go police ahead. action. No, go ahead. That is a eminently sensible and sane, rational suggestion which makes me despair of it ever actually getting implemented. <laughs> but I do agree with you. Um, Ms. Augustine, I want to thank you for being on our show. You fantastic guest. If people want to follow you and find out what you're doing, where would they go? Oh, well, I, I, I make my comments on Facebook. I make, I tweet. I, I, I have to say that I've reached the point where I'm, yes, I make quite snarky comments quite a bit because it's, you know, <laughs> I, have a, I have a blog. I'm blogging now about um, the book and the new book and why I want to do that. It's really quite easy to find me online. And just the, wait, name, put the name of the blog is nakedanthropologist.com, correct? Uh, it's just my name. Oh, exactly. oh I'm sorry. Com. Put naked anthropologist and and you know Laura Augustine in Google. It it will find me. Got it. 
Okay. <laughs> well, I'll, and I'll definitely link to all those in the show notes. Again, thank you so much for being a guest. This is a subject that I feel strongly about, and I am so glad there are people like you out there doing the work that you're doing for me. Thank you very much, Donnie. Nice to meet you. Thank you for joining us for another episode of The Lemurian Hour. Our guests tonight have been Ben Robinson and Laura Augustin. The theme music for the Lemurian Hour is Future 1957 Instrumental by Daymare, off the Futuristic Groove from the Past EP. The incidental music has been Unconscious Mind by Techstar, off of the album Cyberstyle. You can find other episodes of this podcast on my website, johnlemuria.com, and on iTunes. You can support the podcast by going to patreon.com slash johnnylemuria. You can find Lemurian Hour on Facebook, and you can find Johnny Lemuria on Twitter and Pinterest, and on Tumblr at lemurianspace.tumblr.com. Join us next week when our guest will be Kathy Von Elfberg from the Kingdom of Ruritania. Until then, I'm the Reverend John Lemuria saying always cry theater in a crowded fire. Mm-hmm.